The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by Dole Food Company, the world's leading producer and distributor of fresh fruits and vegetables. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. As I do every week, I want to open our program by welcoming members of our armed forces who are joining us over the Internet as well as new listeners on affiliates coast-to-coast throughout all 50 states, including friends in Hawaii and Alaska. Thank you for making us part of your Newsweek. We heard a lot about the Clinton and Trump foundations during this last election, and most of what we heard was about what these foundations were not doing. So our guest today comes as a breath of fresh air, CEO of one of the largest, most effective, and also most important foundations in the United States. Jamie Mirasotis will be joining us to talk about the single most important ingredient needed to transform the U.S. economy, and that is talent. In just a moment, we're going to learn about what steps must be taken to grow an educated, talented, and exceptional workforce. But before Mr. Marisotis joins us, let me tell you a little about his background. Jamie Marisotis is a graduate of Bates College in Maine, and he has worked as an advisor and consultant in Russia, Europe, and Africa, in addition to being a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Prior to joining the Lumina Foundation as CEO, he was the president of the Institute for Higher Education Policy and executive director of the National Commission on Responsibilities for Financing Post-Secondary Education. Marisotis also helped to establish AmeriCorps and served on the leadership council of the Aspen Institute's Franklin Project. But what caught our attention is his best-selling book, America Needs Talent, which explains how the United States must and can build a 21st century workforce. Because without an exceptional workforce, a vibrant economy is simply not possible. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report, President and CEO of the Lumina Foundation, Mr. Jamie Marisotis. Thank you for joining us today, Mr. Marisotis. Thank you very much, Rebecca. Good to be with you. First, let me congratulate you on the success of your book, America Needs Talent. Um, As you know, Donald Trump uh, successfully ran on a platform of change. So this feels like a perfect time to ask you about one of the ideas that you have (laughs) for making education more relevant and also productive. You have suggested that we should combine the Department of Education and the Department of Labor to to, uh, create a Department of Talent. So tell us a little bit about that and what impact that would have. Yeah, you know, I call this idea a U.S. Department of Talent, and part of it is based on my experience. I spent uh, two decades of my life in Washington, D.C., and I I grew to understand the dysfunction and the bureaucratic infighting that took place, despite the best of intentions in terms of what we're trying to accomplish at the federal level. Uh, I call this new entity, this uh, this new agency, the U.S. Department of Talent, but I, but I want to be clear my idea isn't about more government, it's about better government. And what I really have in mind here is combining the functions of the entire U.S. Department of Education with a part of the Labor Department, which is called the Employment and Training Administration. And actually a third element is within the Department of Homeland Security uh, and part of the Citizenship and Immigration Service. They actually have talent recruitment functions. And Each of these, I think, plays a a distinct and important role in talent cultivation for our country. I think if we bring them all together, 
it would have some fairly dramatic outcomes, not only in terms of improved efficiency and effectiveness of government, which is also quite good, but I think it would send a powerful message to our to our citizens, to our to employers, to global partners and competitors. It would show that the federal government as one partner in the process of developing and deploying talent is actually serious and strategic about its role in developing and harnessing uh, our talent. Now, we're presently facing a significant workforce gap. American companies have tens of thousands of jobs that they cannot fill with American workers. So what can companies and the government do to actually close that gap? Well, you're absolutely right. We have a significant gap, and, and we, we have a talent gap that I don't think Americans fully understand. Uh, there's roughly 2 million unfilled jobs in the American economy uh, right now due to, due to a lack of, of, of qualified applicants. And uh, a survey last year showed that three-quarters of CEOs say that that lack of qualified talent is a major concern. I think from the perspective of the employers, uh, what we need to focus on is not only their role in terms of providing education and training to their employees, though I think that's an important element of, of what they can do. So things like investing in, in uh, tuition reimbursement and other programs is very uh, helpful in terms of uh, there being a, uh, an investment in the, in the talent within a company. But we also think that uh, companies should play a, a more active role in supporting the innovation of what's needed to get to the higher level of talent. So uh, the development of, of new techniques like social innovation bonds, which actually bring together private investors with government, with service providers, and actually pay for outcomes, specific talent outcomes. We've seen um, examples of companies that are actually developing new payment mechanisms, in other words, new ways of paying for education and training through what's called income share agreements, which allow private lenders to invest in a student for, for a share of his or her future earnings. So we think the private sector, you know, one of the things I point out in America Needs Talent is that the private sector has to be a robust and active partner in the talent development and deployment process in our country. And certainly the private sector has financial resources. We have you know, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars that could be deployed by the private sector. But there's also a, a bottom line for them as employers. There's literally an ROI in terms of that investment, in terms of uh, in employee retention and productivity and, and uh, greater success overall for the company. So for those reasons, we think that the investment combined with their innovative potential has uh, a huge opportunity for uh, for workers and therefore for our collective prosperity as a country. Now, in the interim, while we're trying to close that talent gap by investing in having corporations invest in their employees and finding new ways to fund and pay off those investments, um, how does our immigration policy put, play a role in our ability to attract and keep talent? Well, you know, there's we're at a challenging time in the history of our country, obviously, when we talk about immigration. This has been a, a bruising uh, time in terms of the uh, election season, and uh, to me, uh, immigration is something that we, we absolutely have to address. So it's important to say that despite the challenges, we must deal with our immigration issues in this country. And you know, to me, immigration is a core part of, of the American success story. We, we really are a nation of immigrants. And my view is that we are constantly renewed uh, by the energy and the innovation of our diverse population. That includes immigrants. But, you know, my view is that uh, while we certainly have problems with immigration, so as a national issue, it's correct to acknowledge that there are problems like border security that have to be addressed. But my view is that treating immigration on the whole as a problem rather than as a, a deeply effective strategy for shaping the American society we want is wrong. We, we have to find a new path forward where we can find ways in a, a civil and respectful way to uh, air our differences uh, and at the same time celebrate the diversity of our population. And our, and our immigration policies have to reflect that. Yes, and My they certainly have to reflect the need for uh, talent if we cannot hire Americans to fill certain jobs. And we're, we're admitting we have many, many jobs which can't be filled by Americans right now. 
That's exactly right. Uh, you know, the primary strategy should be to grow our own talent, but yes. we also have to acknowledge that in a complex uh, market, we also need to attract talent. That, very well said. Uh, if we can't fill it with our own talent, we still have to move forward. We have to take our first break, but stay right where you are. We'll be back with more from Jamie Marisotis. You're listening to the Costa Report. Biodiversity is the very fabric of our lives. It is everything around us, all of nature. But human impact is diminishing biodiversity at an alarming rate. And because of that, the intricate web of biodiversity is unraveling in ways we don't fully understand, and our world is becoming less resilient. That's why we are biodiversity advocates. We're the E.O. Wilson Biodiversity Foundation. Guided by the greatest living naturalist, E.O. Wilson, we champion research and education that expands our understanding of biodiversity and informs worldwide conservation efforts. The E.O. Wilson Biodiversity Foundation is building a movement of environmental stewards like you who share our sense of responsibility for the living world that is our home. Join us in our quest to protect biodiversity, the fabric of our lives. Visit eowilsonfoundation.org. holiday season is just around the corner and I want to share one of my favorite tips for being able to avoid that last minute dash to buy something that screams, I didn't put much thought into this. Now imagine a different scenario this year. Imagine the surprise on your loved one's face when they open the first page of the Watchman's Rattle and see a custom dedication in their name by the author. The best part is it's so easy. Just go to RebeccaCosta.com, do it right now, and click on the book cover and presto. In less than three minutes, you can request the inscription you want. So do it now. Go to RebeccaCosta.com, and this year, give an affordable, thoughtful gift that says, this is for you and only you. That's RebeccaCosta.com. Cash flows and money moves. The Money Moves Show is dedicated to delivering tips and tools to help you earn more, save more, and protect your hard-earned assets. Host Pamela Fugit hetrick interacts with her guests and callers every Thursday night from 7 to 8 p.m. Recent topics have included what is going on locally with health insurance, tips to maximize your Social Security income, how do you build an emergency fund for your family, Medicare 101 tips, how do you choose and pay for home health care, and many other topics. So tune in, take notes, call and get answers to your financial questions from Pamela Fugit-Hedrick on Money Moves, Thursdays at 7 p.m. That's Money Moves, Thursdays, 7 p.m. on KSCO, AM 1080 Santa Cruz and KOMY 1340 Watsonville and 104.1 on your FM dial. Hey, buddy, it's me, your laptop. That's right, your little modern marvel of technology you've been abusing for months. Dude, we need to talk. Do you really think that those free PC Fix-It programs are any match for today's spyware and malware? Not to mention the NSA and some of those websites you've been visiting. Now, I'm not here to judge, I'm just saying. You need to take me to Peter and the friendly staff at User-Friendly Computing to get me back into tip-top shape. Tired of unfriendly computer support, slow computer, viruses, spyware? No problem. Call the friendly computer experts at User-Friendly Computing. We take care of all your PC, Macintosh, and laptop needs. Mention KSCO and get a free $50 diagnostic. Visit us today at 505 River Street on the way to downtown Santa Cruz, across from Gateway Plaza. We give you a choice. Drop your computer by the shop, or we'll come to you. Call us today at 423-9653. User-Friendly Computing. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is the author of America Needs Talent, 
and CEO of the Lumina Foundation, Mr. Jamie Marisotis. And before the break, we were talking about the need for immigration reform to take into account that there are many jobs which require specialized skills and talents which cannot be filled in the United States at this time uh, by Americans. So in many cases, companies have no choice but to import that talent. And now that doesn't mean that we don't need a parallel plan to develop the talent here at home, but it does mean that we simply don't have that talent, uh, certainly not enough of it today. Is that right? That's absolutely right, Rebecca. It's a complementary effort, and it strikes me that we have to think of immigration as a tool in the toolbox to build the talent base that we need. Growing our own American talent through education and training strategy should be our, pro- our primary strategy. But we need to think about ways in which we can attract talent, talent that we need at all levels, the low end, the middle end, and the high end, to help improve our economic and social well-being as a country. You know, what's interesting is that other countries have, have gone about doing this. Places like Australia and Canada, they've developed these deliberate skills-based models of immigration. Uh, They have uh, different dimensions. They focus on different issues. But I think we could learn something from those experiences and apply them to the American context. Uh, Today, we have to address our immigration challenges. We have to overcome the fact that while we have border security issues that have to be addressed, our biggest challenges with immigration are how to build the country that we, we need We need to focus on the kind of society we want and how to recruit the talent to help construct it, and uh, that should be our primary interest in in immigration. Well, we were talking about other countries. The latest statistics indicate that only two-thirds of high school graduates in the U.S. go on to college, and a little more than half do actually earn a degree in college. How does that compare with other nations? Well, what we've seen in the last uh, few years is that, in fact, uh, the educational attainment rates, in other words, the proportion that move from uh, high school to a college or university, it might be a community college, it might be a four-year institution, and the proportion of those that then finish and get their, uh, their degree is actually growing faster in other countries than it is in the United States. And so countries like Korea and Canada, several of the Scandinavian countries, have actually surpassed the American post-secondary educational attainment rate uh, uh, in the last few years. America used to be number one. We are now somewhere around 10th or 11th in the world in producing uh, people with post-secondary degrees in the 25 to 34-year-old age group, we're still near the top uh, in terms of the proportion of all adults that have post-secondary degrees. But that's because my generation, the generation uh, 45 and older, was the most educated generation in the world. But today, that's no longer the case. Why is that? Why have we started to trail? Well, part of the reason, I think, is that these other countries uh, moved forward. In other words, I think every... Every nation on earth has a growing need, um, you might even say an insatiable need for talent, for for knowledgeable, skilled, and adaptable human capital. And the other reason is that the ways in which you can develop that talent, uh, providing high-quality learning that actually builds human capital, have increasingly gotten democratized. So it's not as expensive as it used to be. You don't need to build an entire new university, though some countries like China have done that. You can actually uh, gain access to high-quality learning through the Internet. You can do it through your workplace. You can, do, you can learn post-secondary skills in the military. So there's lots of ways in which you can do that. The U.S. does that, and in fact, our educational attainment rate has increased in the last five or six years. It was flat for a very long period of time. We have inched up a little bit. But these other countries have gone faster. They've invested, and they've actually taken advantage of the fact that uh, the cost of producing uh, people with high-quality talent goes down because of technology, and they've just moved faster than we have. Mm -hmm. Yet even with a college degree in hand or post-secondary education, recent studies indicate that as many as half the jobs in America are candidates to be replaced by automation, artificial intelligence, and other innovation with job requirements changing so rapidly, I mean, how useful is that post-secondary education these days? I mean, are there some degrees or areas that seem to uh, be more useful over the long run than others? 
I think there's uh, several issues that we've got to tackle here. One is that your credential, and your credential might be a degree, but it also might be a certificate or a certification or, or some other form of, of credential that actually shows you, you know something and can do something. That is still the currency in the labor market. Credentials demonstrate that you know and can do something. In, in uh, the American context, I think what we're learning now is that we need to find more and better ways to actually understand what those credentials mean, what they represent, mm-hmm. and how we can actually get more people uh, with them. And so uh, if you think about the, uh, the nature of these, these credentials, uh, they are changing. We don't just need people who have a bachelor's degree or a master's degree in certain areas. We need people who have adaptable skills, in other words, skills that will allow them to change as the nature of their jobs changes. Uh, We need people who are critical thinkers, problem solvers, communicators. So we need people who have broad, adaptable knowledge, skills, and abilities, and at the same time can continue to grow their more specific job-associated skills in accounting or chemistry or whatever it might mean over a long period of time. So in the old days, someone like me would graduate from high school go to college, graduate when they're 22 to 23, and then live a productive work life for 40 or 45 years um, with that single degree. Uh, Going forward, I think it's pretty clear that we are going to have a much more dynamic marketplace, an ecosystem of credentials, where you're going to have to continue to improve your talent over time. You'll need that core credential to get you going, but I think we're going to be talking about a much larger number of credentials and a much more dynamic ecosystem in the not-too-distant future because of what you pointed out. The nature of work is fundamentally changing in a knowledge economy. I think it's really interesting. I, I consult with a number of Fortune 500 companies, and they bring me in to teach them uh, about fast adaptation, and yet I've never been to a university or college where they've offered any courses on, on adapting quickly and, uh, you know, and, and becoming more resilient and pliable to what market conditions are and, and how they're changing. Just never seen that. It's almost as though we expect that we have some innate, uh, I don't know, genetic aptitude for adaptation. Right. <laughs> yeah, know? absolutely. Well, it may, it but may it's, be But it's part. not so. There are techniques that allow you to adapt uh, more easily than others. It's it's exactly. a learned it's a learned thing, and uh, you know it's like art. You know you can't you may only know how to draw a stick figure today, but if you take an art class, you could probably draw something a little bit better. Exactly right, and you can learn that uh, uh, adaptive ability in lots of different contexts. You may not need to take a course in 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 being adaptive. It may be embedded in a variety of things that you're learning. So that's, there's lots of ways correct. to do that. There are a lot of ways to to uh, get uh, acquire knowledge. Now, we have to take another scheduled break. Uh, The name of the book is America Needs Talent, and we'll be right back with its author, Jamie Marisotis. You're listening to the Costa Report. I'm here today with Scott Caraccioli of Caraccioli Cellars, recent winners of the best sparkling wine in the U.S. in the Champagne and Sparkling Wine World Championship. Congratulations, Scott. Thank you, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. So what is it about your Brut Cuvée that beat all the other competitors around the world? We really focus on creating an expression of the Santa Lucia Highlands and doing it the right way. And when you control the process from the beginning to the end and you have talent like Michelle and top-tier grapes, they really shine through. This was a worldwide competition. It was definitely a humbling experience. We were in a room with producers that have been making wine for over 100, 200 years and was a huge honor to have Tom Stevenson give us the best U.S. Sparkling Wine Award. We fared really well overall. We had three wines win best of class, which was great. Visit the Caraccioli Tasting Room on Dolores Street in Carmel by the Sea or find us online at caracciolicellars.com or reach us by phone 831-622-7722. Hi, Registered Pharmacist Ben Fuchs here. I've been studying healthy bodies for 35 years, and what I've got to tell you may shock and surprise you, but if you listen up, 
it may change your life. One of the most important words in the realm of health and wellness is subclinical, meaning not bad enough for medical intervention, but bad enough to negatively impact health. Classic example involves the thyroid, where mild dysfunction of the body's regulatory gland are much more common than blatant and overt hyper or hypothyroidism. Unrecognized and undiagnosed subclinical hypothyroidism is the root cause of almost all cases of chronic pain. In children, low thyroid levels can retard normal growth and development, and many researchers believe subclinical hypothyroidism is associated with hyperactivity and other behavioral problems. The study linking increased fractures and osteoporosis and other bone health problems to subclinical hypothyroidism. The thyroid regulates nutrient absorption, and once it starts to become sluggish, micronutrient malabsorption is likely. Using nutritional supplements can be helpful, especially selenium, iodine, and the B vitamins. And because thyroid hormone is activated by gut bacteria, making sure you're eating fermented foods and using a good probiotic supplement is a good idea. And so is making sure you're eating your veggies. Vegetable fiber is an ideal food source for thyroid-friendly intestinal microbes and increasing elimination of toxins and heavy metals that negatively affect thyroid health and functioning as well. Pharmacist Ben here urging you to go to kscohealth.com to order Beyond Tangy Tangerine, the Healthy Start Pack, and other nutritional supplements that I personally use and recommend. You can purchase these premium quality products at wholesale prices online at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com. I'm the pharmacist that believes that staying healthy and strong is not only about medicine, it's about giving your body the raw materials it needs to do its work. Go to kscohealth.com. Make sure you check out the cool videos, too, at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com. Here's Rick and Rosie discussing their private proclivities on the air. I'm looking at a picture of him, and he has got either false eyelashes that are very, very fine, or he has amazing upper and lower lashes that look positively gorgeous. And he's a guy. He's 17. It's not wrong. I'm just saying that as a straight guy, and I think I'm overwhelming majority of straight dudes who won't. Would you for Halloween? Depends on what I'm going as. If I'm a vampire, yeah, I'll cover myself in, in white, but I would never go. No, I'm not talking about covering yourself in white. I'm just talking about just having... What would my you know, costume be? I don't know. You could wear a dress. <laughs> so you, you want me just to go as a woman? I could see you in a dress. Oh, my goodness. Well, I've, I've, I, the only time I've dressed up like a woman is when you and I swap clothes for whatever reason. I don't understand why. <laughs> don't miss Good Morning Monterey Bay weekdays, 6 to 9 a.m. on KSCO AM 1080. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and if you're just joining us, my guest today is the author of America Needs Talent and the CEO of one of the largest foundations in the United States, the Lumina Foundation, Mr. Jamie Marisotis. And you were making the point that knowledge and skills are acquired in any number of ways. Um, as you know, recently, uh, the Department of Education opened up the kinds of education which qualifies for financial aid and We've heard very little about this in the media, but it has allowed a uh, a way for online courses and trade and vocational training and other ways of acquiring skills to be paid. Has the, paid for? Has that had a measurable impact on talent development? Well, one of the things that I think uh, the federal government has gotten right here in the last few years is that it's looking for ways in which it can invest in innovation while at the same time protecting consumers. In other words, making sure that limited government resources are applied effectively. And one of the things that we've seen in the U.S. Department of Education is this increasing effort to experiment. So uh, one of the ways that they've done that is to try to figure out if you can actually deliver high-quality learning in what we might have historically called non-traditional contexts or non-traditional ways, but are quickly becoming more mainstream. So one example would be through what's called competency-based learning. So in the typical model where you can get federal government support, a Pell Grant or a student loan or something like that, you have to be enrolled in a college or university that awards credit. Credits are essentially a time-based unit, right? So you get 60 credits, you get an associate degree, you get 120 credits, you get a bachelor's degree. Right. Uh, That's the standard model. In these new models, these competency-based learning models, they actually turn the system on its head. So in the current model, 
time is the constant and learning is the variable, right? So your credit hour accumulation getting you to 120 for your bachelor's degree could be quite different among institutions of learning, among colleges and universities. In the competency-based learning model, you define what the competencies are that that degree or other credential should represent. And if you've attained all of those competencies, then you get the, the degree or credential. And there were a small number of these experiments that had existed for several years, but now there's a growing number of them. And one of them that has received the support of the federal government is an initiative out of Southern New Hampshire University called College for America. It's one of the better known uh, one of these models now. And what College for America has really done is taken a very sophisticated approach to uh, associate and bachelor's degree level uh, education, providing students with a very high quality learning experience online that allows them to uh, demonstrate that they have competencies. And when they demonstrate all of the competencies that are required for that degree, they get the degree. And what's exciting about this is that it portends a potential sea change in what we think of when we think of degrees or other credentials, because going forward, what you as an individual, what your employer, what we as society should expect is that credentials should represent real and relevant learning and competency, uh, specific knowledge, skills, and abilities that you can, you can measure is the way to do that. So we're excited about it. We've seen a, a terrific uh, growth in competency-based learning. Uh, there's now a, a network of these competency-based learning providers, some of them new but many of them within existing colleges and universities that are making the switch to this new model. But we have to learn as we go here. And one of the things that the government is struggling with is how to allocate support for low-income students who qualify for federal student aid uh, for those kind of learning experiences. And that's what these, these experiments that the Department of Education is, is managing are all about. Now, one of the things that you advocate in your book, America Needs Talent, is that you'd like to see the states do more experiments like this. Um, what do you say to folks who say that, well, education varies so much from state to state, institution to institution. Uh, do we really need a federal policy? Should this be pushed back to the states? Yeah, you know, I think in the current environment, it's not an either-or question. I think that mm -hmm. the federal government historically has had a role in supporting access to higher education. So federal student aid, which really began in earnest in 1965 and, and grew through the 1970s and 1980s, uh, the federal government plays a major role in providing access for low-income populations. States uh, play an important role in access, but states are the largest providers of post-secondary learning because roughly four out of every five college students today goes to a community college or a public four-year university. So I think both need to focus on this uh, new model of competency-based learning. The federal government as a supporter of student access and the states as the providers of, of the learning through public institutions. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk a little bit about the cost of education because that's something that came up in this past election quite uh, frequently. Uh, for college students that are listening today, what, what do we really need to do to bring the cost down of uh, post-secondary education? Well, this is the critical question, and I think you've made a, an important point here, which is that this was one of the key domestic policy issues that consumed the presidential campaign in the last year, in large part because the post-secondary learning system has become unaffordable for far too many Americans uh, you know, especially people who are who are low income or first generation or non-white, and people who attend part time or who work and have children. You know, a quarter of all college students today are parents. So it's a very different model of higher education than I think uh, we've come to understand. So we've really got to redesign the system of higher education, in my view, to make it more affordable. In other words, we've got to focus on these new delivery models like competency-based learning, while at the same time recognizing that uh, we've got to find better ways to support students so that it meets the needs of these uh, modern students. Uh, the affordability is not just the tuition costs, it's also what they have to pay in terms of their housing, their child care if they're a parent, uh, their transportation, etc. And uh, that system, I think, uh, has to uh, change 
in order to serve these new students, today's students. An important element of the debate, uh, I think, is that we've actually got to come to some consensus about what we mean when we say affordable. Affordable is one of those uh, concepts. It's an eye of the beholder idea. Everyone says they want a more affordable system, but typically what they mean when they say it is the tuition cost or sometimes the discounted cost after you take financial aid into account. Uh, my view is that affordability needs to be defined by uh, in a different way. It should be defined from the perspective of the students, the learners. And affordability uh, should be defined as what students or their families can reasonably afford from current income, from savings and work, in order to uh, pay for their own educations. We have not had that conversation. So uh, politicians, uh, university presidents, uh, lots of people will tell you we're working hard to improve affordability. And my view is uh, the measure should be that you should actually be able to show uh, what proportion of someone's income or savings and how much work they actually have to do is being addressed through the post-secondary learning. And if we come up with this kind of a benchmark, an affordability benchmark, we can then design our financing systems around that concept of student-based affordability. So when you combine that with the redesign of the learning process, I think we could literally get more students through the system at a lower cost. Well, it seems to me we have a way of defining that. It's your tax returns, but all your tax returns can get you now is financial aid, not right. a discounted um, rate. You know, uh, it won't get you a free college education. It'll get you financial aid. That's exactly right, and I think many of That's, your... That, to me, oh. seems like a big flaw in the system. Obviously, if you can prove that uh, you are in the poverty level, uh, giving me financial aid is not the solution. You should be giving me the education. Right, exactly right. And, and I think, you know, many people understand that the process of applying for that aid is unbelievably complex. The, yes. The forms, the requirements, et cetera. And we do have a tax system where you should be able, in a very simplified way, to demonstrate that you don't have those resources. And if so, government should be able to help you with that. Yes, I, I agree. And uh, it actually, when we come back, I'll tell you a quick story about how I fell through that loophole and uh, wound up working three jobs to get myself through school. We have to take our final intermission, but stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages from today's sponsors. You're listening to the Costa Report. Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, cookbook author and culinary expert. Strawberries, blueberries, blackberries, and raspberries. Dole has a bounty of berries ripe for the picking. Fresh berries are not only delicious, but some of the most powerful disease-fighting foods available. Researchers have found that berries have some of the highest antioxidant levels of any fresh fruits. So add a handful or two of your favorite berries to your next meal and enjoy their nutritional benefits and natural sweetness in all of your dishes, from salads to desserts and everything in between. For fresh tips and ideas from Dole's berry experts, visit berries.dole.com. And be sure to check out the pages of mouthwatering recipes. Whether it's a sweet and savory blueberry cranberry chicken salad or a simple strawberry sorbet, Dole has the perfect berry to inspire your next berrylicious dish. In the opening of All Quiet on the Western Front, Eric Maria Remark wrote, This book is to be neither an accusation nor a confession, and least of all, an adventure. For death is not an adventure to those who stand face to face with it. It will simply try to tell of a generation of men who, even though they may have escaped its shells, were destroyed by the war. Today, Project Healing Waters offers men and women that have escaped the shells of war the opportunity to heal by teaching our returning veterans to fly fish in some of the most beautiful, tranquil rivers in our country. These natural surroundings have the ability to restore the human spirit, and with your help, Project Healing Waters is able to reach out to thousands of our men and women in the military every year. For information on how you can help, go to projecthealingwaters.org. Please give and give generously to those who have put their lives on the line for you. That's projecthealingwaters.org. Help those who have escaped the shells of war and need your help to come all the way back. 
My name is Melissa Snyder. I'm a customer relationship manager with PG&E. I help California-based customers meet their energy efficiency goals. So you save energy and you can save money. Energy efficiency and the environment go hand in hand. I like the fact that PG&E is committed to helping the environment and to helping save energy. Being able to pass that along to my family is really important to me. Just being together and appreciating what we have right here in California. See how you can save energy at PGE.com. Together, we're building a better California. Hiring people is probably the worst part of my job. We started using ZipRecruiter about three months ago. One click and my job was posted to 100 plus job boards, all the top sites. All of the candidates came to my dashboard and it's easy to compare them. And I couldn't believe the number of great applicants we got. I don't know how we hired before ZipRecruiter. Find the best candidates with ZipRecruiter, where your job is just one click away from 100 plus job sites. And right now you can try ZipRecruiter free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash radio offer. That's ZipRecruiter slash radio offer. People do not like going to the dentist unless they're going to this dentist. Hello folks, Michael Olson here with Dr. Guy Peabody. How has healthcare changed with respect to dentistry over the past 20 years, doctor? Well, overall, healthcare has changed in a way where uh, people are being treated a little more like a number. Um, so one of the things we're excited about is we get to be that blast from the past. We're more of your Marcus Welby kind of office. Uh, we know our patients. We know their family members. Uh, we don't treat them like a number. And we give them the time and the care to give them the quality result they want. And they feel well cared for. What is the result when you've restored dental health to somebody who hasn't had any for a long time, what kind of change does that affect in them? Well, it, it brings about a tremendous sense of confidence within them and uh, and peace of mind. Call Dr. Guy Peabody for our consultation today and wake up to a great smile tomorrow, 831-457-0343, or visit drpeabody.com. <laughs> Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and if you're just joining us, my guest today is Jamie Marisotis, and we're talking about the real engine behind economic growth, which is talent, and his must-read book uh, that is titled America Needs Talent. Now, we were talking about the affordability of education, and I promised to relay a little story about my own college experience. Um, I, I, when I was 18 years old, applied for financial aid, Uh, being the first member of my family to go to a four-year university. But in those days, if your parents uh, showed you as a dependent deduction on their tax returns, then your income was determined by your parents' return. So in spite of the fact that I didn't have two nickels to my name, (laughs) I was not eligible for financial aid. And I got lucky, a... uh, uh, a, a kind gentleman, uh, the day I started school, and I did, really did not have any money, uh, a kind gentleman took pity on me and gave me a job at a grocery store that was walking distance to the university. And uh, it was just about enough to pay my rent, my books, and my tuition uh, if I worked there full time. And then, you know, he kind of found out that I was a serious kid and he introduced me around and, you know, I got a couple of other jobs uh, along the way, but uh, it was, it was very tough. And so I, as much as uh, it, uh, you know, not everybody's concerned with education and the affordability of it. um, I have to say, if you make it too hard for people, they get discouraged and they wind up taking uh, jobs that are probably far less and far under their potential. Uh, I think that's exactly right, Rebecca. You know, there are millions of Americans, myself included, my brothers and I were the first generation in our family to go to college, neither of our parents went. And we all consider ourselves lucky. Uh, To me, luck is a terrible societal strategy. You know, in the 20th century, I think we were able to use our God-given abilities and, and our ingenuity and the American spirit to actually produce the talent that we needed. But here in the 21st century, we actually need a plan. We need a plan to attract, develop, and deploy that talent. That's one of the key themes of of my book. And that includes making sure that people like you don't slip through the cracks of this system. That, in fact, in the modern society, your ability to be a part of the middle class is highly driven by whether or not you've got the talent uh, in order to to succeed. And, And most of that talent today has to be developed in 
what I call a post-secondary learning context in a college or university or in a high-quality workforce program or in the military, uh, there simply are fewer and fewer opportunities for people with without that talent to be a part of the middle class. And I think part of that is is what we saw play out in this election, which is people who've been left behind in the modern economy because they don't have that talent are increasingly frustrated and angry, and uh, that's certainly understandable. Uh, Our strategy has to be to invest in their talent to help pull them up so that they can share in the prosperity that those who have the talent have actually been able to enjoy. Now, before we run out of time, tell us about the Lumina Foundation, which you are the CEO of. You are attacking this problem of developing the kind of workforce that can keep this economy moving forward. Yeah, Lumina Foundation is um, an unusual entity in American philanthropy. We are one of the largest uh, private foundations in the country, as you pointed out, but we have a very a narrow and specific mission. All of our interests and resources are designed to help the nation, to be a catalyst for the nation in achieving a time-limited quantitative goal. We believe that 60% of Americans should have a high-quality post-secondary degree, certificate, or other credential. And the the 60% number is really driven by what we've been talking about today, which is that uh, two-thirds of the jobs being created today require a post-secondary education, but it's also aligned with what we were discussing in terms of our international competitors. The best performing countries in the world are at or above that 60% threshold. And so both for international competitive purposes and for our uh, own uh, internal workforce needs, we need to do that. And so Lumina is an independent, uh, nonpartisan uh, organization. We're not aligned with any company or business or, or entity. We're, we're fully independent. And our view is that we've actually got to create the system change that's necessary to build a post-secondary learning ecosystem that will actually produce the talent that we need here in the 21st century. Now, you have laid out a very clear, achievable objective, and I say achievable because other countries have met that objective and exceeded it, as we've discussed. Uh, But so many foundations have gotten a bad rap in this election, and I, I felt so excited to have you on because... The Lumina Foundation is actually effective and working, and it's not only the one of the largest, it's also one of the most well-run foundations in the United States. So tell us a little bit about where you get your funding from and what programs the majority of the money is being spent on. Yeah, Lumina was uh, the result of a corporate merger, so it's what's called a conversion foundation. And uh, like the Ford Foundation or the Kellogg Foundation or the um, you know the Casey family uh, programs. Um, this money uh, came from as a result of of corporate wealth, and uh, the uh, idea behind Illumina was always to focus on this high quality post secondary learning context since it was created, and we've used those resources partly as a grant making organization because that's one of the things that private foundations do, but really as a leadership organization to actually. Uh, help the country uh, achieve these goals for talent development and deployment. And the goal, goal 2025, as we call it, the 60% goal, is one expression of that. But a lot of our work now is really aligned with this idea that we've actually got to uh, produce uh, more uh, graduates, uh, more people with this talent through this post-secondary learning ecosystem at all levels. And so we invest in system change. Our grantees tend to be organizations that can focus on system change. They might be think tanks. They might be organizations that are working on serving large numbers of learners. They might be workforce-based programs. Uh, there's lots of different ways in which we can do that. And, you know, we think that uh, you've actually got to have a specific plan. We actually have a very transparent model at Lumina Foundation. You can see what our goals are. You can see what the progress is on our website all of these things are, are fully transparent in what, what we need to do. But we think it really comes down to the fact that we need to focus on uh, completion of quality credentials and affordability and closing equity gaps, particularly for uh, African-American, Latino, and Native American populations, as well as low-income and first-generation Americans. 
We think the concepts that you and I have been talking about today about uh, producing transparent, high-quality credentials is really important, not just in colleges and universities, but in lots of these different contexts. Absolutely. And, that, and, and, and the foundation we, is just, you know, doing such excellent work. I have to encourage our listeners to go to the website and take a look at all the good work that they're doing to advance well, se- post-secondary you. education. Um, unfortunately, that is all the time that we have. But before we say goodbye, I'd like to thank you and the Lumina Foundation for your public service. Thank you, Mr. Marisotis. Thank you, Rebecca. And before we bring our first hour to an end, I'm going to ask all of us to take a moment out of our busy day to think about all of the things our country has accomplished. We didn't just cure polio and win the race to the moon. We also helped raise Europe up from post-war ashes, created and connected highways from coast to coast, and invented the Internet, all things central to our daily lives. And how did a relatively young nation do all of these things? Talent. Here in the 21st century, America needs talent. We have to produce it. We have to deploy it in ways that are different than the past. It isn't enough to hope for success. We have to produce that success. We have to focus on what's needed to be competitive. In his book, America Needs Talent, globally recognized leader in philanthropy, higher education, and policy, Jamie Marisotis explains why workforce talent is critical to ushering in a new era of innovation. To find out how to revitalize, recharge, and recreate a new America, get your copy of America Needs Talent. Do it today. Go to americaneedstalent.com. That's americaneedstalent.com. You'll be glad you did. Now stay tuned for a second hour of Straight Talk Radio. You're listening to the Costa Report. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 